0: Testing one. There we go. Some strange looks, right? They're just trying to weed through and figure out. Miss Betty did great. I, my dad was known for making up words in a song when he would forget them. and Usually he remained pretty theologically sound, as he did so. But All right. We're going to follow suit with Hark the Herald Angel Sing, Sings in thinking about uh, the divine explanation of the birth of Jesus. And we're going to take... Our subtitle, directly from the song, God and Sinners Reconciled. The angelic heavenly announcement of the birth of Jesus was primarily for the purpose of giving us an explanation of that birth, which is God and sinners reconciled. Before we dive into Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, I want to say a, a thank you from the bottom of my heart for your generosity We know that the two finest chapters in the entire Bible on giving are found in 2 Corinthians. It's Chapter 8 and chapter 9. Chapter 8 has this verse in verse 9. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for our sakes he became poor, that through his poverty we might become rich. That's in the context of Paul admonishing us to give. No one ever gave like Jesus. When was he rich? When he was in the confines of heaven as the Son of God. When did he become poor? When he, came, when, he came, when he came like us. Right? That through his poverty you might be rich. The other one is found in 2 Corinthians 9 verse 15. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And we know what that gift is. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. So what I'm saying to you is... Oftentimes, our generosity flows from really understanding the grace of God. And last week, you showed that because the love offering for Lazarus was $11,300. And I tell you, that is unbelievable. Uh, Nathan and I were hanging out in the woods, literally in a stand on Tuesday, and ice was everywhere, and Blake sent me that text, and I formed on my face tears. Just thanking God for this church family. We don't realize what that does for a missionary over in Guatemala who lives off 800 American dollars a month. We don't know what that's like. Praise the Lord for you being willing uh, to show generosity in giving that offering. Amen? All right. Let's uh, look. Some of the children are anticipating Wednesday morning. And you've prayed and prayed that Brother Philip would preach a short sermon on Christmas morning. I get that. However, you may only get a lump of coal and a long sermon. All right. One of the ancient creeds reads like this. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God and light of light, very God and very God, begotten Not made, being of one substance with the Father through whom all things were made. That same creed makes this marvelous declaration. Who, for us men, for our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. Wow, that encapsulates Christmas for us, doesn't it? And again, I think the finest Christian uh, Christmas hymn ever written was the one we just sang, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And it says, Peace on earth, mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth." So today, we're going to talk about Christmas as summed up by an angel and an angelic choir. Sounds good, doesn't it? It's not going to be uh, the traditional trappings of Christmas, uh, the traditional things we think about, the materialistic trappings. It's going to be the pure, pristine teaching of thus saith the Lord. Find out what the Bible has to say to us. Look with me. Chapter 2, verse 8. I joke with Natalie often that I'm going... When I retire one day, I'm going to become the guy that sits on the hill in Branson at Silver Dollar City. And you ride that train, and the lights are off, and pop, lights come on, and there's that grandpa. That's going to be me one day right there. (laughs) Chapter 2, verse 8 is where he started this week when I went down there. And I love to hear him say this. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone round them and they were filled with great fear interesting construction in the greek language and the angel said to them fear not for behold i bring you euangelion good news of great joy that will be for all the people for unto you greatest news we could ever imagine Greatest Christmas present we could ever be given, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, the only only place this construction is found anywhere in the Bible. No no other gospel, for unto you is born this day. Here it is in the city of David, (coughs) a Savior who is Christ the Lord. (coughs) And this will be a sign for you: you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And Suddenly there was, with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. May God bless the reading of His Word, and may He speak to our hearts. Now, you all sounded somewhat incredible today, singing the Christmas courses. But if I was going to bet my money on the way someone sounded, I'd bet my money on this angelic chorus, right? From heaven and how it sounded on that day. So it is through this passage that we get the divine explanation of the birth of our Savior. I know I'm going to miss some details this morning, but I want to at least help you see the context of chapter 2, 8 through 9. 14. And to do that, we have to back up to chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And you know this text without reading all of it. There's a decree that goes out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And the Bible tells us that Joseph, of course, and Mary, they're in the town of Nazareth. But they have to go back to their genealogical home. And where is that? It's in Bethlehem. So they have to go back there. And Mary is great with child. And so they're going to go back there. And then 6 and 7, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger. Because there was no place for them in the inn. So there's a decree. It's a remarkable historical detail. And it's there for a profound reason. God is going to bring together of all things, politics, providence, and prophecy. You know, our God can do what he wants to, correct? And so the Lord God of heaven has a desire to fulfill Micah chapter 5, and it says that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem some 700 years before that takes place. And so the Lord God begins to move on the heart of a tyrannical, leader, Caesar Augustus and he orders a registration why? because they need to be able to keep up with the eternal revenue of your taxes right? and so they do that and because Mary and Joseph are both of the lineage of David they must go back to Bethlehem which is their city of origin and please consider with me how inconvenient this would have been for Mary and Joseph she is at this point great with child And she's literally bursting at the seams. No question about it. And this decree goes out. An unbelievable journey for this young couple to take to get back to Bethlehem. I know it was exhausting. Have you ever traveled with a pregnant woman? Better yet, have you ever traveled with a pregnant woman on a donkey? Just think about this for a moment. It was inconvenient, it was exhausting, yet it was the providence of God that caused this to take place. Again, it's hard for me to let this slide without reading it, but listen to Micah 5. I meant to tell the guys to load this one, but I forgot. Micah 5, verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth me for me, one who is to be ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Check this out. And he shall be their peace. That is direct fulfillment. So God works out His plan so that the Son of God is born in Bethlehem fulfilling prophecy. God Almighty takes politics and uses His providence to fulfill prophecy. This happens all the time and God does this. So it displays God's sovereignty. In 6-7, through we've got the record of the birth of the King of Israel. The Bible says the days were fulfilled. Now, that's obvious because Luke was a physician. And I would say that he could tell uh, in his writing, in oral tradition, that Mary was actually pregnant. Right? He was a physician. He could tell this. But don't miss this phrase that the time came for her. Because there's something deeper here. Luke is making a massive, redemptive, historical Observation as well. It is the fullness of time. And God is going to put His mark on this world like never before. Galatians 4.4 4 says, In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a virgin, born under the law, that He might redeem those, all of us, who are under the law. So it is the fullness of time. God is going to make His mark. Now, it's important to note that the cities would have also been bursting at the seams, just like Mary, right? Because if you're going to have taxation and a census, it's going to demand a lot of employees to get that pulled off. You ever thought about that? So there would have actually been, let's call them city employees, that would also be in Bethlehem. Why? Because the taxation and the census had to be correct in order. So the inn would not have been like uh, I stayed at the Holiday Inn Express last night. And you wouldn't have gotten an extra point for staying an extra night. It's just not the case. But what you do have is that an inn would have been someone's larger home. That's what they would have stayed in. It wasn't a hotel chain. So we make more out of this text than I think the text is conveying to us. There's no malice here. There's no cruelty whatsoever. There's simply no room for Mary and Joseph. The town is packed. Can you imagine everybody coming, everyone coming back to Bethlehem for that purpose? So what does the innkeeper do? He actually gives us a matter of generosity. He's going to give them a place to actually stay. And as some of you germaphobes are going to have a big problem with this, but the Son of God was born in a cattle stall. Think about that for a moment. In a cattle stall. The text says he was laid in a manger. That's not a modern-day bassinet. That is actually a hewn out cattle trough out of stone. That's what that actually is. So the arrival of the king of kings and lord of lords was not accompanied by some type of luxuriant entrance, but it was marked by... Deprivation. 2 Corinthians 8 9. He became poor that through his poverty we might become rich. Now, oftentimes in the Bible we have what's called deed explanation. If you're a student of the word, you know what that means. Oftentimes God will give you the deed, the action, and then he'll turn around in the next few verses and give you the explanation. Well, 1 through 7 is the deed or the action. Verse 8 begins the explanation. All right? And that's the sermon today. Are you ready for it? He's going to shift gears to the explanation. And so he gives this angelic announcement. He gives this explanation. And guess who are the first people to hear it? Stinking old shepherds, right? Again, we get our nativity scene visuals. We have it in our mind what the shepherds would have looked like or what what they did. But let me give you a few reasons why God appeared to shepherds. Or maybe you would say, why would God appear to these guys after you hear this? Well, first, I want to remind you that King David was a shepherd. What better way uh, to enter this world than uh, being the royal descendant of David's birth that they would actually announce it first to shepherds? Pretty awesome. Second, you need to remember that the first century shepherds made made up a lowly, lowly status of people. It's not glorious work to be a shepherd. It's just not. This is not the best shift to work at all. Shepherds actually had bad reputations. We know that the nature of their vocation meant that they could not be involved or have observance of Israel's ceremonial rites. They were excluded from it. And furthermore, they were considered to be unreliable in the court of law. So they couldn't even go to court on behalf of someone else. Chances were, if you grew up as a little Jewish boy, uh, your normal statement would not be, when I grow up, I want to be a shepherd. Would not have been the case. It was a lowly vocation. But the God of eternity, when He seeks to enter this world, He does so with an explanation of His birth. First, to lowly shepherds. Now, did you notice the text? And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were filled with... With great fear. So here's the deal. The highest theology in the Bible up to this point is going to be given to those who are lowly. This explanation of heaven, from heaven, of joy to all people is going to come to those who are lowly. So they understood that the gospel is not just for Israel but for all the nations. Think about this. Fear not for behold I bring you good news of great joy that will be for, say it. All people. Now, did you know that God is not overly impressed with the high and the mighty? We know this. It's the nothings and the nobodies that he sets his grace and affection upon. So the angel appears and the glory of God shone round about them. What a spectacle. Now just think about this. The glory of heaven has actually come and he's lying in a manger in Bethlehem at this point. But out there in the fields, let's say it's... uh, Let's say the shepherds are a mile away from Bethlehem. We don't know exactly. But just think about this. The Shekinah glory of God appears to these shepherds on this Judean hillside. What a spectacle. Uh, it's an amazing thing to think about. Some people believe that possibly the shepherds were watching over sheep that were going to be used for sacrifices. Boy, that's a, I like to preach that if that's true but I'm not sure. Some surmise that they were all hired hands and when it says they were watching over their flocks, literally, it, it was their flocks only in the sense of they had eight or ten of them, but they didn't own them. I'm not sure what's going on at this point, but just think about that. God, with all of His glory, appeals uh, appears to them. It's remarkable. It's remarkable to think about. The glory of God is overtly displayed to lowly shepherds. It's a visual manifestation of the glory of God, much like Mount Sinai, when the glory of God appears. Amazing. Now, what can we say about the angel? We get this wrong too, right? We do so often in our nativity thought process. We get it wrong. This is not some chubby little baby with sissy wings. That's not what this is. We, all, we will ride around and say, oh, look, the Christmas story, little fat baby with angel wings, right? Wow, what about that? The literal meaning, rendering, is they feared a great fear. Now, who in the world would ever be afraid of a chubby little angel with sissy wings? <laughs> folks, get that out of your mind. The actual understanding is a military, august being. So much so. That it struck fear. They feared a great fear. Now, I like to have a glorified imagination at times. Let's let's talk for a moment about the fact that possibly angels have a school of appearing before human beings. And in this school, I want to remind you, the very first thing they learn is this. We've been doing this a long time, but when you go down to mere mortals, you need to tell them not to be afraid. Because they could very much die in your presence. Now, I don't think that happens. But I want to remind you that angels are not omniscient. So I'm sure the Lord God has to remind them that when you go down there, they're mere mortals. And they're going to be struck with fear when you appear before them. That's not the way we see it in all of our Christmas nativities. That's not the way it's actually brought. You know, Our media and society is just a chubby little angel, sweet-looking thing, with a sissy wings. But that's not what the Bible teaches. All right, I, I'm, I'm done with the angel. That just gets me every year, you know? Bothers me. But this is what the angel says. Remember, they're, they're struck with terror. Do not be afraid. Here's the message I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Many of you have heard of Bishop J.C. Ryle, and this is what he says about this great news. Again, listen to this I bring you good news of great joy which will be for all people. What does that mean? It means for Jew and Gentile. All the peoples of the world. Guatemalans, right? People from India. uh, Vietnam. All over the world. I bring you good news. Here's what J.C. Ryle says, The way to pardon and peace with God was about to be thrown open to all mankind. Check that out. The way of peace and pardon. The head of Satan was about to be crushed. Liberty would be proclaimed to the captives. And recovery of sight to the blind. The mighty truth was about to be proclaimed. That God could be just. And yet, for Christ's sake, He could justify the ungodly. Salvation was no longer to be seen through the types, and the figures, and the shadows. And what does He mean by that? Well, He means the Old Testament. But now openly... And now face-to-face, the knowledge of God was now going to be offered to the entire Gentile world. The text says, I bring you good news. Do you all know what that construction is in the Greek? It is the word, we get our English word, evangelize. Euangelion is the Greek word. I gospelize to you good news of great joy. I'm proclaiming to you. So the first time the gospel was ever preached it was preached by an angel. I'm proclaiming to you the good news and my prayer is that this joy will be something in your life that is unspeakable and full of glory. For this congregation, that's my prayer for you if you're a believer. And if you're lost today, my prayer would be that by the end of this service that you would have joy unspeakable and full of glory. Just think about those words. I bring you good news of great joy. We should pray that this message would come home to all of us in such a way that we sense the great joy that we have because of what God has done in us through the Lord Jesus Christ. The angel says, and it's for all people again, this is for all the nations. We, we look at Bethlehem and we remember that even in Micah 5, it says that you're small. That little beady, insignificant place, seemingly in a corner, right? Just tucked away, no fanfare. Uh, The only trumpet you heard was the braying of a mule, right? All of us would have loved to have been a fly on the ear of a shepherd sheep on that night. I get that. But there was not a lot of fanfare going on. It didn't cause a clamor in the ripple of Bethlehem, even in the sense of that night. Only to shepherds who heard that this was the glory of God being manifest in their presence. But here I want to remind you of something. It was in an insignificant place. in Bethlehem tucked away. It wasn't in Jerusalem. It wasn't in what they thought was the center of of worship. The angel is announcing this in Bethlehem. But it was going to affect the whole world. For all people. Notice on that day in the town of Bethlehem. Not Jerusalem. There was born to you a Savior. Greatest news that could ever be given to people who are lost in their trespasses and sins. Greatest news that could ever be given to people who are unable to save themselves. Notice what the text says. Don't you love this? For unto you is born this day in the city of David. Say it. A Savior. Here is a Savior who is able and who is willing to save. Now, we live in a day when we have to, uh, well, i say it this way. We live in a day when the majority of Americans could not even give you the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We live in a day when, boy, it would be a stretch for people to give you two of the Ten Commandments. Well, we also live in a day when you say the word Savior, you must, by necessity, explain what you mean by Savior. Even more so, when we use the term save, we have to explain it because people don't understand what that means. What are we saved from? Why will we need a savior? But the reason you need a savior, folks, is because you're lost without Christ. And this doesn't mean that your GPS is broken. I mean, that's what people are going to think about today. On what well, I'm lost, I mean, I can find my direction. just plug in my GPS on my phone or in my car. But the fact is, when we say the word lost. We're taking the biblical understanding of the Bible says that without Christ you are strangers to God. The Bible says when you're lost you are outside of the grace of God. You're outside of the mercy of God. And in biblical terms the Bible would actually say to us that without Christ we're going to perish. We love John 3.16 don't we? Don't we? For the Lord loved in this manner that He gave His only unique Son that whoever believes in Him will not You know, that's the danger of that text, right? Before you get the design of explanation of the love of God reaching sinners, you get this understanding that we're in danger. And folks, without Christ, you will perish. Unless you are connected savingly to the transforming grace of God, you will perish. That is what the Bible says. The most coveted verse in all the Bible that everybody knows. Every football game, you'll see it today in the KC game. Somebody hold up John 3.16. There's a danger in that verse. And that danger is the reason you need the gospel. Because we will perish according to what the Bible says. So what does a person need who is under the heavy hand of condemnation and an indictment from a holy God that our sins will call us to, cause us to perish? What do we need? Folks, we need a Savior. Amen! Preach it back there, right? You need a Savior. And there is only one Savior. You know, people say, well, I don't like that way. Why couldn't God give one, two, three, four, five, six ways? You need to be thankful that God gave us one way. He didn't deserve to give you any way whatsoever. None of us deserved it. Not not a single one of us. But aren't you thankful that God gave us the Savior? He gave us the Savior. So, when you see this title come together, a Savior who is Christ the Lord, again, it's the only time in the Gospels that it appears. And what happens is the three most important titles about the Son of God are given together here. The Savior, the Messiah, the Lord. Isn't that amazing? Christ is the Old Testament personification of Messiah. Number one, Savior, He will save His people from their sins. That's what He told Mary, correct? But also Jesus is the Messiah. He is the promised Old Testament personification. He is the promised one in the Old Testament that will fulfill the law of God perfectly and be our substitute. And most staggeringly of all, this text says he's the Lord. You know what that means? It means he's the maker of all things. John 1 would say, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and nothing that was made was not, there was nothing made that was not made by him. Who is that? That's the Son of God. You know He created this world, folks. The same God, who, the only God, the Son of God who created this world entered this space-time continuum in your flesh. Took it on. Fully God, yet fully man. So, He is ruler of all. So the angels not only give us the gospel and give it to the shepherds, but they also give us the true identity of Christ. He's Savior. He's the Messiah. And He is, say it, Lord. There's not a single word wasted in this communication from the angel on that incredible night. Uh, I like to say it this way. The angel from the Lord had concise theology. It's good to know what you believe and why. Savior, who is the Messiah, long-expected Old Testament Messiah, prophet, priest, king, the anointed one, and this Messiah is Lord. Check this out. This is David's son, but also David's Lord. Wow. Wow. You see that in the Psalms as well. He's the reigning king. He is Lord. He is God in human flesh. And check out the rough simplicity of the birth of the Son of God. Notice this. And this will be a sign for you. No fanfare. Uh, Nothing in neon lights. This is going to be the sign for you. You'll find him in a feeding trough wrapped in cloth. This was the declaration that would send the shepherds away on that particular night. Some people make uh, do word studies on that word sign, which is "semaon," which there is a significance there, that actually the word bring, brings out the connotation of heaven's monogram. In other words, you're going to find heaven, sign, sealed, and delivered. Heaven's monogram. Semeon, the sign. It is a different word than the normal sign, but it's still simplistic. Here's going to be your sign, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in the manger. So, this declaration sends them the way. However, before they could go, there were some Christmas carolers that showed up. Right? When the angel finished preaching the good news of the gospel and giving the identity of Christ, which that's called good preaching, right? You can't end without a closing hymn. And here's perhaps the greatest closing hymn of all time. And suddenly. You know what I take that to mean? Without notice. Right? Boom! Suddenly, without notice, you have this angelic choir. Now, the Bible says, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude. A lot of translations will say host. We don't use that word a lot, do we? We don't use the word host a whole lot. But the actual word is a military term. Here again, we're not seeing chubby little uh, babies with uh, sissy wings. This is a a military-type understanding that this choir appears. Uh, Many people have gone to great lengths to say that angels do not sing. I think that's bogus. All right? It does say saying here. Come on, folks. They're singing. Even the way the text is laid out for us in thinking of it, it leads up to just that bursting forth. Of singing out aloud. Even the word saying emphasizes it's loud. So whatever they're doing, they're praising God. I believe they're singing and they're saying glory to God in the highest. As this choir appears, the first note that they strike is the glory of God. Boy, shouldn't that be the refrain of our church music? Not an emphasis on me. Not an emphasis on always on eminence. But we need to put some of it on transcendence. We need to reflect the glory of God with what we sing and why we sing it. And the first note that we have on a worship service ought to be glory to God. Not glory to Americans. Not glory to FBCO church members. Glory to God. Glory to God is what they sing. The very Check this out. The very zenith and the height of the glory of God comes when divine truth, divine grace, divine love incarnate in the Lord Jesus Christ enters this world. That is absolutely the height and depth of the highest thing we could ever think about with the glory of God. Look, folks, the phrase glory to God in the highest is absolutely appropriate at this point because there's no greater glory than in the revelation of the Son of God as He entered this world. That is the highest. Oh, I nearly came unglued. I I was hoping, David, that y'all were going to sing that one when the choir goes glory to God in the highest and you continually hit that highest, highest. I'm like, I'm about to rapture, right? Because folks, think about that for a moment. That's what the coming of Jesus to Bethlehem is about. The Son of God who made the worlds. And there's no way you can ever... Heighten this anymore to say glory to God in the highest? Why? Because truth has been incarnate with us. The God of heaven came down, and what a come down to earth kind of gospel we have—that our Creator God would come to this earth—and there's a reason for that. We're going to see it in a moment. But the fact is, we uh, we're all often accustomed to a wrong translation of the ending: "Glory to God in the highest." In other words, nothing greater. Nothing higher than the glory of Jesus, as manifested here. And then this, on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, the ESV does a good job of rendering what it is. But how often do you hear, I even heard this on TV last night, peace on earth and goodwill toward men. That's not the translation. It's not. Folks, uh, that would be the paradox. That would be the oxymoron of all oxymorons to say that there's peace on earth just because Jesus came from heaven. Because just look around. Is there peace in the U.S.? Let's just talk about Republicans and Democrats in the House. Any peace there? Now, that's not what that means at all. It doesn't mean that everybody's going to have peace. As a matter of fact, the Son of God would tell us, you will cry, peace, 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 but there will be no peace. Right? So, peace on earth and goodwill toward men is not the, render, not the rendering. The literal rendering is on earth... Peace among men of His good pleasure. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men of His good pleasure. So now we have not only the angels announcing uh, the gospel and the identity of the Savior, but now we have angels angels announcing peace with God. I.e., divine explanation of Christ's birth is God and sinners reconciled. There was no reason for the Son of God to come to earth unless He's going to reconcile you to God. And last time I checked, all of us need to be reconciled to God because all of us are sinners. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So this phrase, whom He is pleased, did you know that that's used three times? It's a Semitic expression used by Paul and he uses it three times in Ephesians chapter 1. When's the last time y'all read through Ephesians 1? That God does this according to the good pleasure of His will. He does this according to the good pleasure of His will. He does this according to the good pleasure of His will. And that construction is reminding us that the one who is Savior, who is Christ the Lord, will bring peace to those whom God is pleased. What an amazing testimony. Christmas, the birth of Christ, is about the glory of God being demonstrated in bringing peace through His Son, According to the good pleasure of His will. Don't miss that. That's what Christmas is. It's the Son of God bringing peace to those in whom God is pleased. What a testimony. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. Jesus was born to reconcile you to God. He made, the Bible says, peace through the blood of of his cross. Aren't you thankful? Did you know that the cradle and the cross and the crown are inseparably linked together? You can't separate them. And so often we do that. We like the sentimentality of the creche or the manger scene, but will we stop there? We don't realize that looming in the background was the cross in the shadow of the manger. We don't think about that. That's what Christmas is really all about. Jesus came to bring peace. Between God and sinners. We could ask that question, could we not? Why did the eternal Son of God, y'all did hear that part, right? Ancient of Days, no beginning, only begotten of the Father, no, exi- no, no, no created, he's not created, coexistent, co eternal, co substantive with the Father for all eternity. But yet the eternal God became a man. Why did he do this, folks? He did it to die. Hebrews said he had to be made like us in order to identify with us and die for sinners. God can't die. Are y'all listening? But mankind can. But yet this man never sinned. He that knew no sin became sin for us that the righteousness of God might be in us. So the Son of God became a human being in order to die. To offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins so that we could be reconciled to God. The one who came into this world with this kind of humble beginning and way came in such a way that the ultimate humiliation would be death on a cross. But the humiliation didn't start at the cross. It started when he came down from heaven. Right? He was rich in his glory but came to this earth. Now, he did this in order that we might have peace with God. Was Jesus a great teacher? No one ever taught like Jesus. No one ever taught like Jesus. That's what they said, right? Did He do great miracles? You better believe He did great miracles. But if that's all you see of Christ, you missed the gospel. Ladies and gentlemen, yes, He taught. And yes, He did miracles. But the greatest miracle of all is that He would go to the cross of Calvary to save you from your sins. Right? He came in order to die. It doesn't matter what's under your tree this coming Wednesday morning. There's no finer gift than to have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you have the gift of peace that comes from the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know that's one of the king's titles given to us in Isaiah 9? For unto us a child is born. Don't miss this part. A son is born. Why was he given? Because he, he was in heaven before. The son was given, the child was born, right? And he shall be called wonderful, mighty God. There you are, Prince of Peace. It's only yours. You can't buy this gift, you can't barter for it. You receive it by faith. You receive this gift, the greatest gift that could ever be given, by faith. Do you stand today? And more importantly, will you be able to stand in the last day knowing that you have peace with your Creator? Well, that's important, isn't it? It is highly important. The only way to know for sure is that you are savingly attached to Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. How do you know? If you're in God's good pleasure. Isn't that important? Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. How do you know if you're in God's good pleasure? Well, it is only through having faith in Jesus Christ and clinging to him and his promises that you know you have this peace and pleasure of God. So where are you this morning in this? Hebrews 11 says without faith. It is Categorically impossible to please God. Wow. It says here that uh, on peace among those of which His favor is upon. When you get to Hebrews, it says that there's no way actually to please Him unless you have faith. It is impossible to please God without faith. It goes on to say those who draw near to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder Of those who diligently seek Him. So, the real test to know if you're in God's good pleasure is not to scrape your insides apart to determine if you're a person of His good pleasure. The real order of the day is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in believing, you will have the confidence that you are a person in God's good pleasure. Are you there this morning? Your greatest need today is peace with God, bought by the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's how Paul will say it in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you understand, folks? There's no way to have peace with God. There's no way to have His pleasure upon you. There's no way to go to heaven apart from being justified freely by His grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. So when the angel declared peace, that's what it means. God and sinners reconciled. So, when the angelic army was announcing peace on that night, they were announcing the very reason why. They were announcing the very purpose of why the Son of God entered into this world. So I hope you understand that. I hope you get that right. There's nothing better in this life than to have the certainty that you have peace with God. Doesn't that grip your heart when you're thinking of your loved one and you're not sure? Oh, if you could just know that they had peace with God, it'd make a whole lot of difference, wouldn't it? Folks, that's not going to go away, uh, no matter how your belief system is. And I'm, I'm positive that I'm probably talking to some people in here that you struggle with either whether God exists or not. But here's the reality. Is Christianity and the person of Christ, and the need for forgiveness, something that we just press upon ourselves because of guilt? And we just create this crutch crutch that we need? We create all this in our vain imagination? Or is it the fact that you are a sinner, separated from God, you don't have peace in your heart, and that's a result of the fact that God created you for His glory, and at this moment you're estranged from the life of God? I got news for you. The reason you feel the absence in your heart and the reason you desire to have peace with God, the reason you know that in your mind and heart that it's not right to murder someone is because God Almighty put that in you. Romans chapter 1. Those people who believe they're atheists or agnostic have just bumped their head. Why? There are no such thing. There's no such thing as an atheist according to Romans 1. God has put His knowledge in you. Why, why do you think you do morally good things? Why do you think morality even exists at all? It's because there's a God in the heavens who controls all things. We didn't just make this up out of nowhere. You don't have these mind-altering thoughts in your mind and conscience and heart if God doesn't exist. Right? How many times have you driven up behind someone and the, the bumper sticker says, if it feels good, do it? Boy, there's so many times I just want to go. Right? If it feels good, do it. Right? There's no morals, no... Oh, something tells you that if you do that, you're in trouble. Why? Because you're breaking the law. Why is that in your mind? Because the God of eternity exists. And He's put it in the hearts and minds of man. Right? Where even the invisible attributes of God are manifested. What's that mean? You don't even have an excuse. Why? Because God created the worlds, Right? Even if He never told you about His Son, you're still without excuse. Because the heavens declare His handiwork. Right? It screams and shouts that God exists. So, there's nothing better to have peace with God. The peace only comes from believing in the Son of God. Do you know that from the time of our Savior's birth and receiving Him as Lord, there was a pattern that was followed by those who heard? You know, these shepherds, in a few moments, boy, they can't contain it. So, once they see Christ... For themselves, what do they do? They go out and say some things. They tell some things. But there's a pattern that goes on if you've really experienced the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And here's a lesson for all of us before we leave this place. Here's a pattern. They teach, they treasure, and they tell it abroad. Right? No one can come into an understanding of the glory of God and not do those three things. If you've really been touched, if you've seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, and you've been saved, then you can't help but to teach it, to treasure it, and to tell it abroad. Last word. And this is a strong one. He is Savior, Christ, and say it. Say it loud. Did you know that 1 Corinthians 12 says that you can't even say Jesus Christ is Lord apart from the Spirit of God? All right now, church folks, He's the Lord of your life. Would you say he's Lord? Jesus is Lord. You know what that means? You know what it means to say Jesus is Lord? It means this. There's no way possible for you to serve him as Lord. Right? Unless you are willing to obey him in every area of your life and submit to his word. Jesus said, why don't you call me Lord, Lord? And do not the things I say do. So the reality is, when we trumpet ourselves and we say Jesus Christ is Lord well we have to stop and say this Lord the only way I can actually serve you as Lord is to submit myself to what your word says regarding your person and work and what you ask us to do so I want to ask you a question is he Lord of every area of your life what you holding on to? you say Jesus is Lord well really what about this habit that you know full well dishonors God is which ones really Lord that habit or Jesus well that comes to hit it comes home to us right folks you do understand that's what Lord means why do you think Jesus said that why do you call me Lord Lord and do not the things I say do now we're gonna fail and sin you better believe it but a born-again Christians desire and bent will be to obey Christ not to disobey but when you do disobey you're going to fall on your face before a sovereign God and the conviction, convicting power of the Holy Spirit is going to throw that signal up in your mind that, hey, you know what? I'm not obeying Christ as Lord. Folks, I want to tell you, He's either Lord of all or He's not Lord at all. Right? If you say that He's your Lord, then the only way to serve Him as Lord is to obey Him and the Word in every area of life. Glory to God. In the highest. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy. And Father, we readily admit that we are fallen sinners. And we just, with delightful hearts, thank you for the angel's announcement of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he would save his people from their sins. Lord, our greatest need was the Savior. And we thank you so much for him. Father, your word reminds us that this is the day of salvation. Lord, the same grace that saved me and others in this building can save anybody. Your grace can reach anyone. There are those who would think, I'm beyond the reach of God's grace. No, that's not true. You can save sinners anytime, anywhere. Lord, I pray for the lost sinner in this congregation. Lord, I pray for those who are struggling with all kind of different belief structures. Whether it's pluralism or universalism, whatever that might be. Lord, only you can convict a heart. Only you can give people eyes to see. The Bible says that the natural man does not discern the things of God. That means people in their lost condition cannot discern the things of God. The Bible says you must turn on the light. Just as you spoke creation into existence... The Word says in 1 Corinthians that you speak truth into our hearts and you cause us to understand who you are. God, we're at your mercy. And unless you speak to hearts, we'll forever be lost. And when you do speak, we must receive you by faith. We must believe the gospel in faith, trusting only Jesus for salvation. And we're thus given a righteousness that is not our righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ given to us. Wherein we have peace with God. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.